I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes... Nearly $10 million was all gone. It's just unbelievable. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's been almost 3,000 years, and Greek mythology has proved that it is not going anywhere. But it can be difficult to find entertaining and engaging retellings of these myths that aren't fictionalized. Lucky for you, I'm here. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is the Greek mythology and ancient history podcast of your dreams. I dive into the convoluted and confusing ancient sources so you don't have to. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you dig through the boxes at Stanford University, you can find George White's autobiography. It's called A Diet of Danger, and it's exactly as pulpy as it sounds. I am George Hunter White, and my parents must have been clairvoyant. I've been a hunter of men all my life. I've had to do it because... It was a vitally important job. I've had to do it because I've loved doing it. Every wild, grueling, tense, and fantastic moment of it, that's not dedication, that's addiction. All the highlights are in the book. Tales of Turkish drug busts, Chinese opium gang initiations, encounters with spies and killers. But the problem with the George White version is he left out some important details the memories George White preferred to keep a secret. Like this one. It's 1952, and George White is boarding the subway. The subway system in New York City is built to be safe. And it is safe, but that's just the train itself. Passenger behavior is different. You can get mugged, harassed, threatened. Or you can board a car with nothing amiss. No sign of trouble anywhere. And then you can step off into a nightmare. There's no record of where George White got on. But at some point in the ride, White reaches into, well, maybe his pocket, maybe a briefcase. He tried to erase the details. But here's what we do know. When he feels the time is right, White sprays an aerosol container into the air. An invisible mist. There's not much of it just enough to affect a handful of people. The people in the car begin to feel strange. They grow uncomfortable. Some panic. Odds are children were on board. Hallucinations are inevitable. Did the walls start to bend? Did the air change? Did people start to hear things? Maybe they're crying, or giggling, or vomiting. No one will have any idea what happened, 
or why. White takes notes. He records the panic. Then he vanishes. Later, he'll write a summary of the LSD experiment in his diary. Quote, the subway test was a success. Pleased with the results. George White will do it again and again and again. He will become a dispensary of hallucinations, a chemical sadist, resolute in his search for a drug that could bend the will of the men and women he hunted. It started as a government assignment. It would become an obsession. That's not dedication. That's addiction. Radio. This is Operation Midnight Climax, an iHeart original podcast. I'm your host, Noel Brown, and this is Chapter 3, The Pad. Part 1, In the Lab. Back in 1943, Albert Hoffman, the man who discovered LSD, was working as a chemist for Sandoz, a pharmaceutical company in Basel, Switzerland. He was born in 1906, the son of a locksmith. And considering what Hoffman wound up doing, providing a key to access hidden states of consciousness, that feels appropriate. Hoffman attended the University of Zurich to study chemistry and later went to work for Sandoz. He quickly became interested in ergot, a fungus that was blamed for mass outbreaks of poisonings as far back as the Middle Ages. But when used judiciously and with care, it also held considerable promise as a treatment for migraines. Attempts were being made to take what was useful from ergot and leave the harmful side effects behind. Using ergotoxine, a synthetic derivative, Hoffman produced lysergic acid diethylamide, or LSD-25, in 1938. Then he got sidetracked with other work. But Hoffman never forgot LSD-25. He wanted to explore it more, to see if it could be useful for something. On April 16, 1943, he was working with the compound when he began to feel odd, restless, dizzy. He left work early and went home, where his imagination, he said, was extremely stimulated. For over two hours, Hoffman gave himself to a cascade of vivid pictures, shapes, and colors. It was a sensorial experience, one that left him with a smile on his face. Here's what Hoffman wrote to his supervisor, Arthur Stahl, as a kind of workplace accident report shortly after his experience. Last Friday, April 16th, 1943, I was forced to interrupt my work in the laboratory in the middle of the afternoon and proceed home. In a dreamlike state, with eyes closed, I perceived an uninterrupted stream of fantastic pictures. Extraordinary shapes with intense, kaleidoscopic play of colors. After some two hours, this condition faded away. 
Retracing his steps, Hoffman discovered a tiny amount of LSD had been absorbed through his fingers in the lab while he was working. It had hallucinogenic properties. Being a man of science, Hoffman felt the need to pursue this discovery. But the first dose had been accidental. He didn't know how much he'd taken. So he decided to start out light. Really light. He only ingested 0.25 milligrams. Hoffman thought he was being careful. But this was far, far too much. Oh, no. No. In his notes, he quickly scribbled what had happened. April 19th, 1943. Taken diluted. With about 10 cc's of water. Tasteless. (laughs) 17 o'clock. Beginning dizziness. Feeling of anxiety. Visual distortions. Symptoms of paralysis. Desire to laugh. (laughs) From 18 to 20 o'clock. Most severe crisis. If his first trip was a pleasure, Hoffman's second experience with LSD tugged at the limit of his sanity. Familiar objects. Pieces of furniture. Assumed grotesque, threatening forms. The lady next door, whom I scarcely recognized, brought me milk. In the course of the evening, I drank more than two liters. She was no longer Mrs. R. Rather a malevolent, insidious witch. With a colored mask. Hoffman felt possessed by a demon, he wrote, and began to scream, terrified he was going insane. Livid, he might actually die as a consequence of the very substance he had brought into the world. Worst of all, Hoffman recalled, was the acoustic perceptions. Every noise was realized visually. He could see sounds. Despite his trip, Hoffman knew LSD held potential provided it could be dosed properly. Sandoz engaged in a series of animal experiments, observing mice on acid and cats who suddenly became terrified of them. Chimpanzees abandoned their sense of social order. Fish swam in irregular patterns. Spiders spun immaculately proportioned webs at low doses and sagging, confused webs at higher doses. Drugs that could produce this kind of sensation were nothing new people had been searching for the divine truth for thousands of years, back to the Aztecs and Mayans. Hemp and peyote were thought to harbor secrets of the mind. Mescaline was the first to be synthesized in a chemically pure environment. What Hoffman and his colleagues at Sandoz discovered was that at a low enough dose, as little as one millionth of a gram, LSD could produce a different kind of euphoria a breakdown of the ego that acted as a barrier between the self and the road to improvement. Hoffman had grand ideas for LSD in treating addiction and as an aid in psychotherapy. Scientists began to study it with those hopes in mind. But there was always the risk, the risk of euphoria giving way to psychotic attacks or feelings of omnipotence. Like any drug, it would need to be carefully studied and subjects would have to be observed in controlled conditions. In the wrong hands, at the wrong dose, LSD would become a nightmare without beginning or end. Hoffman soon lost his grip on LSD 
and so did the scientific research community. By the late 1940s, it became taboo, too dangerous to pursue as a legitimate medical treatment. Hoffman took to calling it his problem child. While Hoffman was never involved with MKUltra, Sandoz was. In 1953, Gottlieb heard that the KGB was attempting to buy what amounted to the world's supply of pure LSD, obviously for nefarious purposes. It was possible the KGB had already bought 50 million doses. In a panic, Gottlieb dispatched one of his underlings to intervene. The man reported back that Sandoz had 10 kilograms available for sale. Remember, LSD is activated in the tiniest doses imaginable. Gottlieb bought all of it before the Soviet Union could. He spent $240,000 on the Sandoz supply and then realized his operative, as good as he might be at international espionage, was extremely bad at math. Sandoz didn't have 10 kilograms. They had 10 milligrams. The operative was off by a factor of one million. That's all they had made in the 10 years since Hoffman discovered it. Still, Gottlieb bought it all. It arrived in a barrel about the size and shape of an oil drum with hundreds of thousands of doses in that barrel. A virtually unlimited supply of nightmares that could be artificially induced. Sandoz agreed to supply the CIA with 100 grams a week, fresh off their LSD production line. And at Gottlieb's insistence, they also refused any further orders from Russia or China and agreed to inform the CIA when anyone else inquired about the drug. For better or worse, the CIA had a monopoly on LSD. From Hoffman's fingers, it went to Sandoz. From Sandoz to Gottlieb. And from Gottlieb to George Hunter White. No one stopped to heed Hoffman's warnings. The biggest danger, Hoffman said, was giving LSD to someone without their knowledge, in an uncontrolled setting, at random, where harmless noises can turn, Hoffman said, into torment, and a psychotic crisis would be inevitable. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, the Apollo Jim murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with the Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am like I am where it is. This isn't going to work. I, I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, if no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. 
I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Who hasn't heard names like Achilles or Odysseus, Cassandra, Medusa? But how much do you know about them from the ancient world? Let's Talk About Myths, Baby is the podcast bringing the ancient sources to life. Greek myth and history is timeless, and unless you've been living under a rock, you have seen just how true that is today. But there is so much more to these characters and stories than what pop culture can do justice. I'm Liv Albert, the host of Let's Talk About Myths, Baby, and every week I bring you stories from the ancient world, both mythological and historical, to breathe new life into these thousands of years old stories. I'm also regularly joined by some of the most brilliant names in the field of archaeology and ancient history, authors of your favorite retellings from today, and everyone in between. Join me as I dive into the wild world of the ancient Greeks and their stories. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths, Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Part 2 Alias. For George White to immerse himself in the CIA role, he would have to stop being George White. And that wouldn't be easy. For all of his training at Camp X and the Narcotics Bureau, White still looked very much like a cop. He had the cop's stare, the cop's walk, the swagger that comes with having a gun on your hip and a badge on your belt. It's a hard thing to shake. But he did it. Like a superhero, he developed a guise for his CIA heroics. A secret identity. At the time, White was fond of meeting his assortment of criminals and killers at the American Museum of Natural History to obtain information, debrief informants, or threaten them with his power and influence. It was a good place to disappear in a crowd. Inside the museum was a section devoted to gems named after famous financier J.P. Morgan, a trustee of the museum and a frequent donor. In honor of his contributions, the museum dubbed the gem section the J.P. Morgan Hall of Gems, or just Morgan Hall. White liked the sound of that, so he took it on as his alias, Morgan Hall. Morgan Hall was a sensitive soul. In the fiction of White's mind, he worked as a merchant seaman, clad in a peacoat, which helped explain his calloused and weather-worn exterior. But Morgan Hall was also an aspiring artist, a painter and sculptor. He was a supporter of the Beat Generation, poets like Allen Ginsberg and writers like Jack Kerouac, artists who were resisting conservative views and taking control of the post-war culture. Later, they'd be dubbed Beatniks after the Russian Sputnik satellite that would go up in 1957. J. Edgar Hoover, that famously tolerant FBI director, said in 1960 that communists, eggheads, and beatniks were among the country's great enemies. They were stereotyped as drug users who wanted to reframe the status quo of America. They were another danger to baked-in moral values. To the CIA, that made them expendable minds. 
If beatniks were viable drug experimentation candidates, Morgan Hall was in the right place, a fox in a hen house. White lived at 59 West 12th Street in Greenwich Village. The Hotel Albert in the village had been a haven for Mark Twain, Walt Whitman, and Jackson Pollock. Bob Dylan lived in Greenwich Village. It had an atmosphere. It was alive, thriving, like minds crowding together in bars and bohemian coffee houses and street corners. The smell of marijuana hung in the air. There was sexual liberation. It was a perfect place for the kinds of activities Morgan Hall liked to get into and for the kinds of people Sidney Gottlieb wanted to dose with LSD. Imagine a doctor or lawyer racing into a police station, insisting he'd been drugged. Now imagine a young man stumbling in from the village, already presumed to be high most of the time. New York would be White's home base until early 1955. For now, at least, it was perfect. With money he'd gotten from Gottlieb and the CIA, White rented a second apartment in Greenwich Village at 81 Bedford Street. After all, drugging people in his own apartment would be poor form. In writing Gottlieb, White bemoaned how difficult it was to arrange for a lease and utilities under an alias, how people wanted references and paperwork with his name on them. Morgan Hall, he said, was becoming a bit of a Jekyll and Hyde situation. And, well, he was right about that. White equipped the apartment, which he liked to refer to as the pad, with a well-stocked bar and plenty of paintings and sculptures to reinforce his cover story of being a struggling artist. He had murals painted on the walls, and there were other kinds of decorations, too. Hidden microphones and two-way mirrors that connected to an adjoining apartment he'd also rented out. This was, in the language of law enforcement, a safe house, a place for the CIA to conduct clandestine business under surveillance. Here's how one observer described the place. Apartment 1C is disguised as an artist's studio and consists of a bedroom, large living room, kitchenette, and bath. The kitchen has been fully stocked with the best of foods, silver, utensils, etc. The bedroom has been decorated in a style attractive to the feminine sex. The linen closet and bathroom have been completely equipped with all essentials for use of both male and female occupants. The living room contains a well-stocked bar over which has been placed a television set. A radio phonograph combination has been purchased and will be placed to conceal a portion of a doorway which has been cut between apartments 1C and 1B, and at the top of which opening will be placed an x-ray mirror. The report added that visitors to 81 Bedford could be compromised. White's comrade in this Cold War operation was a narcotics agent named Pierre Lafitte, whom he'd often worked with on narcotics busts. Lafitte would play a much bigger role in White's life, but for now, he was a sidekick. To celebrate their new assignment, White and Lafitte took a trip to Las Vegas and tried out their new weapon. They tripped. White had no hesitation learning about what he was dealing with firsthand. He would take LSD dozens of times in his life, approaching it with an academic's attitude. He claimed a kind of immunity from its effects, insisting that unlike virtually everyone else, he had developed a tolerance. Lafitte had not. He called the Vegas experiment a netherworld of visions and horrors. When the apartment had been equipped and White and Lafitte returned from their Vegas experiment, White got dressed as Morgan Hall sporting a turtleneck and beret. 
Then he went hunting. White began stalking at coffee houses and jazz clubs. He liked hanging out at Chumley's, a one-time speakeasy just one block from the pad. He sat patiently at tables and bars, nodding in time with the sounds, striking up conversations with strangers. This was his favorite part. He'd already earned the trust of mobsters. The thrill for White wasn't duping people he already knew or leveraging the power he had over them to get what he wanted. The thrill was in winning the confidence of a stranger. From there, White would spin tales of his artistic endeavors, his thoughts on politics, his experiences at sea. It was a seduction. The climax wasn't sex. It was someone who'd been a stranger hours before being won over by Morgan Hall. It's easy to imagine the words of the FBI ringing in White's ears, how he was unfit for duty. Look at him now working for the CIA on the new frontier of psychological warfare. Kiss my ass, J. Edgar. White was well-read and often more culturally informed than his demeanor let on. He spoke fluent beatnik, totally at ease with the tone of the counterculture movement. The people talking to White were on the fringes of society, seamen who might be involved in the drug trafficking trade at ports, artists who spoke with joints dangling from their lips. As he talked and smiled, they couldn't detect the animosity that simmered beneath his surface. The Beat Generation had a reputation for drug use, opioids, weed. These people would have been terrified of George White. But they liked Morgan Hall. Well, uh, Jackson Pollock is wonderful, but uh, if you're into abstract expressionists... Yeah, man, there's all kinds of crazy shit out there. I've got some stuff, some books you should see. Back at the pad, it's just a block away. I'm game if you are. I'm always game. Hall and his friend would walk back to 81 Bedford. White would nod at the two-way mirror mounted over the phonograph. Beyond it in the apartment was Lafitte or another colleague cradling a notebook, prepared to observe whatever happened next. You want a drink? Sure. Some gin some ice, one ampule of LSD, and then it would be time to sit back and watch the show. Where do you buy your weed? What's your dad's name? You ever been on the moon? What's your social security number? You ever try heroin? Where'd you buy it from? You know Lucky Luciano? What about Meyer Lansky? Are you a communist? Describe the color blue to me. On your wife? Hmm? What about your girlfriend? Boyfriend? Where are we right now? This place has so many flowers. It does. Beautiful flowers. Beautiful waterfalls, too. Like a school report, White would write down the dosage of LSD and the subject's reaction. Were they talkative? Scared? Catatonic? Did they answer questions? Did they abandon discretion? Did they lose their shit? He'd take copious notes and send them all back to Gottlieb at a post office in Washington. This was the climax, wasn't it? 
the moment that justified what George White was doing. In a letter written years before, he described his thought process when he finished a report. It may come as a surprise to you, but as far back as the OSS, I firmly believe that all information collected in the field was sent post-haste to Washington, filed in funereal gray steel cabinets by purified acolytes. Then, so the rumor went, on Sunday the high priests would gather to kneel and pray before these repositories of sacred writings. The missionaries in the field were happy. In their faith, the fruit of their labors was being used to propitiate the angry gods. White was a sarcastic son of a bitch, but writing down the details in a clinical way absolved him of responsibility. It was for the greater good. The bureaucratic forms proved it. For the first time, the CIA was getting real, unadulterated field coverage of LSD, collected and curated by Morgan Hall. Everything was going exactly according to plan. Well, almost everything. It wasn't long before other people started showing up at the pad. People like newspaper reporters, narcotics officers, and an informant. Not one of George White's informants, but someone informing on George White. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am like I am where it is. This isn't going to work. I I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...with zero qualifications... She had a Harvard plaque. 
tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. That this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately $11 million. Nearly $10 million was all gone employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich man, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Part 3 the informant. White always wanted to be an FBI agent. And even though the agency declared him unfit for duty, it doesn't mean they forgot about him. When White accused New York Governor Thomas Dewey of making a secret deal with mobster Lucky Luciano, he caught the attention of the governor. Dewey wanted to know more about the man sullying his name. So he asked the FBI to send along some information. They were all the typical biographical mentions, along with something a little more interesting. The FBI had made contact with the liaison in New York. Someone who not only knew George White, but knew George White was up to something at 81 Bedford Street on behalf of the CIA. In fact, it was a narcotics bureau agent, the same one who wrote the description of the pad. In addition to notifying Governor Dewey, the report went directly to FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, who knew all about George White, specifically White's love of publicity for his drug busts. He wanted to know exactly what White was up to. Intelligence agencies love spying on other intelligence agencies. Here's part of that report. A confidential informant of this office advised on July 1st that his former supervisor in the Bureau of Narcotics, George White, has become associated with CIA in an ultra-secret assignment. White and the CIA have rented dual apartments at 81 Bedford Street. In one of these apartments has been set up a bar and quarters for entertainment, while the other apartment is being used by CIA for the purpose of taking motion pictures through an X-ray mirror. White indicated to the informant that no one in the Bureau of Narcotics or the CIA was aware of his apartment or his association therewith, except Commissioner Harry Anslinger of the Narcotics Bureau and top officials of the CIA. The FBI and Hoover knew White was up to something, but they didn't know what. So agents pressed the informant for more information. They were dying to know what White, the maverick dope buster, was doing in league with the CIA. One agent even dismissed the informant's report, saying it hardly seemed plausible that White and the CIA were working together. It didn't smell right. Wasn't White a maniac? What function could he serve? More intelligence needed to be gathered, most discreetly. The informant continued to hang around the pad, White seemingly oblivious to his curiosity. He picked up bits of information here and there. The recording equipment seemed odd. So did the rumors there was drug experimentation going on. Finally, the informant managed to get his hands on two vials of liquid that were stored in the pad. One was in a screw-top container, one was in the same kind of ampule used to house the LSD doses. 
he immediately forwarded both to the FBI, who turned them over to their laboratory analysts. Here was proof White and the CIA were up to something illicit, maybe illegal. When the FBI got the lab report back, they found table salt. The most talented chemists at the FBI were unable to identify the compound, saying only that it appeared to be some kind of organic material in a dilute solution of sodium chloride, or salt. The other vial had chloral hydrate. At the time, it was a rather common sedative. That was the solution in the screw top vial. Neither one was the smoking gun the FBI had been hoping for. The FBI had once again underestimated George White. An FBI memo advised the informant to tread carefully. White, it read, had been told the FBI was sniffing around. And the CIA, likely Sidney Gottlieb, told White to be on the lookout. Leaving an ampule of diluted table salt for the FBI's chemists to examine was one way he could give them the middle finger. The same one he'd been giving them for years. White may have been clever enough to outwit the FBI, but he was still showing signs of recklessness. Why was White discussing the fact that he was working with the CIA with anyone? Why, as the informant related, did White invite a newspaper reporter named Ed Reed to the pad? That's not a very covert idea. More importantly, what was White doing with the chloral hydrate, the sedative? Wasn't he supposed to be focusing on the effects of LSD? White scribbled in his diary fleeting mentions of sodium pentothal, a barbiturate thought to have truth serum possibilities, and nembutal, another sedative. He was dispensing one drug after another like a pharmacist on speed. Much later, when Sidney Gottlieb was asked to justify the work of George White, he said that White had freedom. He could procure any kind of drug he wanted, not just LSD, anything, morphine, mescaline, opium, cocaine. He didn't ask, and White didn't offer. Procurement and use were up to White. At least that was Gottlieb's story. But if White was using a sedative, was it to help someone come down from a bad trip or something else? What exactly was George White doing at 81 Bedford Street that was escaping the attention of both the CIA and the FBI? And just how far away from the mission had he departed? George White almost immediately broke off from the mission statement of MKUltra. He wasn't limiting himself to criminals and dealers. He released a small amount of LSD on a New York subway car, a microcosm of Gottlieb's dream of dosing an entire town. And then there was the case of Linda King. Linda was an aspiring actress with a benefactor, a man named Erwin Eisenberg. White and Eisenberg were close friends. Eisenberg had a home in Larchmont, New York, which White visited on a regular basis. Eisenberg was wealthy, cultured, and rich, and wanted to help King with her acting career by making introductions. Through Eisenberg, White met King. Of course, White couldn't help with her show business aspirations, but she still liked him. He was just the kind of friendly face you'd see on a subway. On September 12th, 1953, White invited King to come have a drink with him at the pad at 81 Bedford Street. 
Linda King wasn't a killer or a dealer or a beatnik. She was a friend. But by the end of the night, she was seeing things. Unimaginable things. White made a note in his diary. King, he wrote, got psychotic. He had dosed her with LSD. King was taken to Lenox Hills Hospital, and his doctor shined a light into her widened pupils and asked her what had happened. King insisted she had been drugged. When doctors asked by whom, King could only utter two words. George, White. Operation Midnight Climax is hosted by Noel Brown. The show is written by Jake Rosen. Editing, sound design, and mixing by Ernie Indradat and Natasha Jacobs. Original music by Aaron Kaufman. Research and fact-checking by Austin Thompson and Marisa Brown. Show logo by Lucy Quintanilla. Special thanks to Spencer Gibson, David Krumholtz, Vanessa Krumholtz, Ted Ramey, and Jason Thompson. Julian Weller is our supervising producer. Our executive producers are Jason English and Mangesh Hatikater. See you next week. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's been almost 3,000 years, and Greek mythology has proved that it is not going anywhere. But it can be difficult to find entertaining and engaging retellings of these myths that aren't fictionalized. Lucky for you, I'm here. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is the Greek mythology and ancient history podcast of your dreams. I dive into the convoluted and confusing ancient sources so you don't have to. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes... Nearly $10 million was all gone. It's just unbelievable. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.